This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast. As you're listening along, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com for more information on our solutions and services, as well as more episodes of the podcast and other opportune content. You can also subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You'll also find a full catalog of episodes, both previous and notifications when we drop new ones. So for today's episode, how supply chain considerations are being impacted by the energy industry's long-term goals of decarbonization. Getting some historical context to better understand what this transition could look like in the long term and grounding this with some advice for supply chain players to map out the best long-term strategy for decarbonization transitions possible. For Insights Today, we're joined by Jay Campbell. Jay, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on. I'm looking forward to unpacking your thoughts today. So let's jump right in and get to the meat of the conversation. Let's start by understanding what these decarbonization goals actually look like in practice. Can you give us some context on what these goals are for major players in the energy industry? And feel free to give us you know, some context from the last several years, as well as maybe in the last several months or just recently. Yeah, where, where this all kind of came from was the um, uh, talk about decarbonization in the shipping and maritime industry. So what uh, what the players are looking at really is the decarbonization of their propulsion fuel. So as in the past, the, the shipping industry has used a, a type of fuel uh, with a, a, a sulfur limits of 3.5%. Recently, with the uh, IMO 2020 regulations that have come into play uh, earlier this year in 2020, uh, called IMO 2020, that sulfur limit was dropped to 0.5%. So a very significant drop in the specifications of main propulsion fuel for the shipping and maritime industry. Uh, that's really where the, the conversation starts. And that is really a first step. So a, a lot of folks are now talking about, okay, how do we take it to the next level? How do we actually get to zero? And of course, that's a that, that's a that's a long term conversation. Uh, we're in the first baby steps of this, uh, trying to get to the the ultimate goal. But that's kind of what started the conversation. And you know, we've had some major players come out recently uh, that have said that they're committed to doing this. They've actually kicked off the conversation within the industry. Now, what has the reception been like to these decarbonization plans, especially from transportation and shipping companies? So far, I think the, the the reception has been pretty good, which is kind of a surprise. Uh, usually, when you have a, a major change like this that uh, that's that's put on the table, it's met with a, a lot of resistance. And I'm not going to say that that there's zero resistance because I'm sure that that there is. Uh, but you know, for the most part, we're seeing 
you know, folks ready to play. And uh, I, I think this this goes a, a lot with the, the the industry's realization that we need to we need to get cleaner. Um, we need to get to the point where we're we're all on the same page with, you know, we have an, a responsibility for the environment. But I also think that that any pushback is going to be on on the economic side of things. It's it's hard to it's hard to to jump right in and, and make it happen overnight without huge economic impacts. I want to unpack both the short-term and long-term consequences of a potential decarbonization transition. So let's start with the short-term. How are some of these plans already affecting the supply chain, whether that's day-to-day operations, plans for investment, B2B partnerships, any of the above or any other context you wish to add? I think short term, you know, we, we uh, I mentioned earlier about IMO 2020, and what IMO 2020 did was it it, it forced a change in the in the fuel blend uh, that shippers are and ship owners are, are using. So where in in the in the past they were able to use a type of fuel residual uh, fuel. It's a very heavy uh, a fuel that they were able to use in the past. They've now taken that and that's been pushed out for the most part, of that fuel blend. And now we're using uh, cleaner diesel as part of the as, as, as part of that blend. So you can see that change right there, whereas the, the residual fuel is being pushed out um, and the cleaner diesel is, is coming into the mix. Also, the, in the short term, LNG has become a, a very viable uh, fuel, and we're seeing a lot of folks in that, that market. We're seeing folks that are starting to use LNG as a, uh, as a fuel. We're starting to see folks that are setting up bunker operations. Bunkering is, uh, is, is ship fueling. Uh, and we're seeing folks that are in that market now. They're they're an LNG fueler. So we've got the infrastructure in place. We've got supply. We've got the the vessels to complete the deliveries, and we've got the vessels that are using it as fuel. So that's a that's a major change from where we were just a just a few years ago. Now, on the flip side, what sort of long term considerations are supply chain players who weigh today, and how are they impacting? the strategy for transitioning? I think there's really a couple of things um, when I'm, I'm looking at this. The, the first thing is what to do with all that residual fuel. In, in the refining world, this is a natural byproduct of the refining process. So as we're refining to get out the products that we want, uh, residual, this residual fuel is going to be there. So what do we do with it? One of the things that we can do with it is, is we send it to, to cokers. Um, and I'm not sure if we want to get into uh, what all a coker does, but there's limited coking capacity in, in the infrastructure, in the market. So we've got only so much that we can do with it there. So I think that's the big long-term question. How do we handle this excess residual fuel? And I think the other big question is, do we, you know, wh- where do we go to reach that zero target, that complete decarbonization? Because I don't think, I don't think even with LNG, we can get there completely. We're going to have to use other means. So how do we get to that? Where do we go next? And I think that's the, the biggest long-term considerations to handle. So, Jay, what I think makes your insights especially exciting today and really grounded is that you worked through two major energy shifts in the supply chain already. 
Those were moves to reformulated gasolines and low sulfur diesel. And this is probably one of the best places to pull from in terms of applicable historical context for today's decarbonization goals and what that transition might look like. Uh, So can you give us a little context on that transition to reformulated gasolines and low sulfur diesel? Give us a bit of the timeline and then we'll get more specific. So back in the early 90s, when they first started this transition over to reformulated gasoline, you know, we've we've gone from that initial reformulated gasoline, those sets of specifications, and we've morphed over time. Uh, we've gone through several changes into uh, more, most recently what they call bobs. So that's before oxygenated blend stocks. And what a bob is, is it's the gasoline mixture right before we add ethanol to put that into the trucks to go to the gas stations, right? So over that time, there was a, there was a, a lot of growing pains as folks became more familiar with the blends. Uh, they became more familiar with the, um, you know, the, the, the differences in the specifications in different parts of the country. So, for instance, you would have different states that would have different, uh, different sets of specifications. And it got to the point where they were so different that the supply chain was, was hurt, in my opinion, uh, because we couldn't take gasoline from one part of the country to supply any shortfalls for other parts of the country. Um, now, I'm not saying this was you know, nationwide, but it was in very key areas. So, for instance, if California, their specifications were so different from, let's say, the, the, the blend, of gla- uh, blend of gasoline that we made in the southern states, that if California had a shortfall, we couldn't take our gasoline and simply ship it over to California to, to fill their needs. And that created huge spikes in the market uh, because of the, of the supply shortage, maybe in, you know, in California. On the, on the other side of that, there was the regulatory aspect to where, where there was a lot more reporting uh, and a lot more regu- uh, regulation uh, around, around that. And what the, what the companies uh, and the different blenders and refiners had to, had to meet these, these specifications and these parameters. So there was a lot of recording in that. And if a company was, was short on their, their limits or if they, were, if they had gone over their limits, rather, it could be very expensive for that company with fines. On the other side, if, if trying to fix those and, and trying to bring uh, cleaner gasoline into your pool, uh, whether it be by blending or by imports, it, it could also be very expensive trying to buy the, the cleaner gasoline to, uh, to, to fix up your, your records. That was mainly on the, on the gasoline side. I think on the, on the diesel side, because we had gone through it on, with, with gasoline, we had learned uh, quite a few lessons. I think the biggest shock for us when we went to low sulfur diesel and then ultimately ultra low sulfur diesel um, is when the price of diesel went over gasoline for the first time. And that was a huge shock because for the longest time, there was a, a huge differential uh, gasoline over diesel. And when diesel went over gasoline, it was just, you know, this has never happened before. So, you know, uh, kind of a kind of a shock to the system. And of course, that translates to to the pump. And when you look at the when you're in the retail sites and you've got diesel over gasoline, uh, I'll never forget a, a friend of mine, his his brother was in the transportation business and he called us complaining that the diesel was now over gasoline just you know, ruining his economics uh, for his transportation company, and it, it it showed up on the at the end of the chain with the the end user. So, 
In that transition, how did supply chain players strategize to make the most of the transition or you know, try to uh, pad themselves basically as best as possible? This is a really good topic because the industry uh, is really good at overcoming ad- adversity. Um, even when they think, okay, well, how are we going to do this? There's no way. The industry is really good at, at, at figuring it out. And whether they looked at it from a technological st- standpoint with refining, okay, how can we, how do we change our refining process? Is there new technology that we can employ to, to, to overcome this? Or is there a way to blend it differently outside the refinery? So there was two ways that the industry went about it. And, um, and obviously we've, we made it um, and, and did a pretty good job at it. And I think that the, Ultimately, once you get past that initial shock, the initial fear, if you will, uh, the industry starts to look at it and say, okay, where are the opportunities here? Okay, we've, we've got this situation. This is what it is. We finally embrace it. How can we, how, how can we do it best? And, you know, quite honestly, how can we make some, some money at this without running economics through the roof and, and hurting the folks down the line? So that's um, that's one of the things I've always been very impressed with about this this industry. And that was the same for uh, for the gasoline transition as it was for the uh, for the diesel transition. During that transition, it did regulators and the market in general butt heads. Was there collaboration? You know, was it a, a positive or negative relationship? Give us a little bit of that context, too. It's interesting. There's, uh, if you could see it on a graph, you would see, you know, a huge differential with the two lines uh, converging eventually. And there was a lot of, lot of headbutting at first. You know, this was, it's, it's unnecessary. It's, it's completely politically driven. Those are the type of things that, that we heard. But eventually, as we, as we, you know, got down the road a bit and saw that this was, you know, this is probably a good thing to do uh, in the long run. And this is not, you know, we this is not a, a dead end for us. I, I think it's when you when you start to come together and and you start to see, all right, I see your point of view. Hopefully, the um, uh, the regulatory folks see the industry's point of view, and and eventually you come together. But you know, of, of course, with any change up front, there's going to be that initial pushback and that resistance. And you know, as as time as time goes, uh, cooler heads prevail, and you come together and and you make it work. During that process, were there any areas where you felt the supply chain at large or any specific players had some missteps or some failures? Uh, and if so, what were some of the consequences and learning lessons? I mentioned this earlier, but I think the biggest misstep was when, as we move forward with our specification changes, the lack of overlap on the specifications uh, from one area of the country to another really af- affected us negatively. Like I, I had mentioned, this is where you get you know huge price spikes because an area is has got a supply shortage. Uh, whether a refinery goes down, something happens that you know uh, cuts off the supply. Uh, that for whatever reason. Uh, there's just not enough to go around. And we can't simply ship ready-made gasoline from one area of the country to the other to ease that that supply shortfall. So I think that was, I, I'm, I'm not sure 
if that was a if it's something we just complete oversight we just didn't even think about it um, or if it's something we decided that you know we're just going to have to deal with this and and handle it as it as it comes but either way I, I think that was one of the, uh, the the biggest problems that that we encountered during that uh, during that transition time every time we transitioned because there were multiple times that like I said that that the specifications had changed uh, and every time we saw that that change and that that gap grow between the specifications from one part of the country to the other we would see this happen so now let's take that historical context and apply it to today's context right what learning lessons can we take from all of this to apply to our current decarbonization endeavors and any similarities you see uh, with how the supply chain is strategizing? I think one of the biggest things to keep in mind is that while we may need this to happen, and I think I think for the most part, the majority agrees that this needs to happen, that this is not something that we can just close our eyes and, and push and force it and, and make it happen. This is something that we need to, we need to take the proper steps to make sure that we don't hit the, the, the type of pitfalls that we saw before. You know, I, I think it's, it's easier said than done, but finding that, that good combination between what must happen, you know, and how we're, we're going to happen, or how it needs to happen, making that come together. Uh, and again, a, a lot of this might be cliche, but you have to put it in practice, right? Um, if we try to force these things too fast, we're gonna I, I, we're gonna have trouble. I mean, if you let things happen on their own, they might happen too slowly. So you need to find that good combination of the of of letting the market drive it and you know pushing through what needs to happen. Find a good combination of that. I always think back to you know when when the automobile. And the um, you know the automobile industry and the oil industry were growing at the same time, and there had to be that that chicken in the egg. And I think we see we're probably seeing some of that now too. So what goes first, right? Do we push hard on the supply or do we push hard on the demand? You know, do we make folks need to have this or do we do we fix our supply uh, our supply issues first? Because we we you know we didn't wake up one morning and there were gas stations on on every corner. We had to wait uh, over time to to let it happen. So I think there's some of that to be learned, and we we can hear in that. Yes, we want it to happen. It probably needs to happen, but we've got to make sure that we mature the infrastructure at the at, at a good pace so it all matches up together, and and we we can avoid any major problems. As we look ahead to what the potential consequences will be for uh, some of these transition plans and strategies, how do you imagine the supply chain's bottom line at large is going to be affected? And how will some of the costs or just adjustments be offset? For the most part, it depends on what side of the supply chain you're on. So sure. if you are a player in, uh, you know, in, in LNG, or if you're a player in some of the fuels to come uh, that will help towards decarbonization, I think your your bottom line is going to be affected very positively. I think you're, you know, it's it, you're, you're going to be on the right side of things. If we hold on to, if you're on the side where you we're holding on to the old fuels, um, and you know, we're, we're 
we're we're not moving with the uh, with as we progress. I think it could be affected uh, very negatively. And whether or not that comes with, you know, you're 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 losing on the side of of the of what you own, or if you're it's costing you to gain supply of what you of what we need. Either way, I I, I think uh, that could be uh, that could affect you very negatively. But at the end of the day, when we come down to it, it's really going to be that that offset's going to come down to the to the end user, because if we have ship uh, fueling costs that continue to in, to increase, well, that's going to affect our our freight rates. So our freight rates will go up, and those folks that are that are chartering these vessels to move their products back and forth, as their costs go up, well, that as you can see, it's just a trickle down effect to the end user. So I think if if we can if we we can mitigate that by a don't don't cram for the exam type of type of mindset, right? Realize it's coming. Uh, make your changes as we as we move through this this transition, and, and do it at a nice gradual pace, rather than all you know all at once and uh, causing a lot of pain for folks down the line. All right, Jay, that more or less wraps up our conversation for the day. So one last future focus question for you here: What advice do you have then for supply chain players to map out the best long term strategy? that is both considerate, but also takes the urgency of the decarbonization task at hand to heart. Um, I'll use the analogy again, don't don't cram for the exam. I think we, we realize that these changes um, are, are coming. These are changes that I think we all see the benefits for and we all have a responsibility for. So if, if we can embrace these changes and start to work early uh, versus that in, initial pushback and then coming together later down the line, if we can embrace this early, start to work on it, start to get our plan in, in, in place and gradually uh, and I'm going to emphasize that gradually make the transition uh, over time. I think this will be a lot less painful uh, for everyone uh, on the line. All right. Jay Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Thanks a lot. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of E2B Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. Like Jay said, if you like what you heard, want to learn more about what Opportune is doing in this space, or get some more Opportune content, make sure you're going to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.